Support comes from AstraZeneca, proud partner in personalized medicine, developing tailored treatments for cancer patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the genetic link to cancer with certified genetic counselors Karina Brierly and Claire Healy. Dr. Chagpar is an associate professor of surgery and the assistant director for global oncology at Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center. First of all, why don't uh, each of you tell me a little bit about your background um, and what exactly a genetic counselor is and does. So, uh, Karina, do you want to start us off? Sure. So, um, I am the chief genetic counselor for the Cancer Genetics and Prevention Program here, and I've been a genetic counselor working specifically in cancer genetics for over 15 years. Um, for genetic counselors, there's kind of a wide range, so we happen to work in cancer genetics, but there's genetic counselors that work in cardiac genetics, prenatal, pediatrics, so a lot of different things. Um, and genetic counselors like myself have a master's degree in genetic counseling. Terrific. Claire, tell me about yourself. So uh, my name's Claire Healy. I've been a genetic counselor for almost 10 years. I'm the outreach coordinator for the Cancer Genetics and Prevention Program here. So my goal is to help bring genetic counseling to the community, um, so not just here in New Haven, but to the care centers that Smilo and Yale New Haven Health have around the state to kind of increase access to genetic counselors for people who may not want to travel. Um, and I sort of see our role as genetic counselors to kind of help patients navigate through the process of genetic testing, understanding the implications of genetic testing, and, and really helping patients navigate through what can be a kind of difficult and scary time. So, Karina, let's take a step back for a minute and talk about cancer genetics. Um, what exactly is that? I mean, are all cancers related to some sort of underlying genetic mutation? Uh, like, what exactly is cancer genetics? So, um, when we talk to patients, we one of the things that people are often surprised to learn is that most cancers are not due to a genetic change, or at least an inherited genetic change. So most cancers are, in fact, just chance or sporadic occurrence. Um, and it's only about, on average, about 10% that are hereditary. Um, and so what we're looking at is patterns in families or individual histories that might give us clues as to which might be hereditary, and then offer options in terms of testing that might answer those questions for patients. And so when you talk about um, looking at your family and so on, Claire, you know, now there are a variety of uh, tests. Sorry, you turn on the TV and you see commercials that say, get your mother a Mother's Day present of <laughs> sure. this genetic test. Is that the same? I mean, why do people need to come to you when they can, you know, order a test uh, off the TV? Yeah, so that's a really great question. So those tests that you see advertised on TV are oftentimes geared towards ancestry testing, um, so helping you try to, you know, further confirm where your family came from prior to the United States. And sometimes they do include some medical information as well, but it's oftentimes not as comprehensive as the genetic tests that 
a provider can order, either a doctor or a genetic counselor. So if you have a family history of heart disease or cancer in your family and you're really concerned about what your risk for that disease might be, that type of testing is really not going to give you as comprehensive an answer as a genetic test that a provider can order. And so let's talk about the difference between genetic counseling and genetic testing. So, you know, ordering a test is one thing, and you get back an answer. Um, you know, black, white, muta mutation, no mutation, yes, no, whatever. Uh, why do people need to come and see you as genetic counselors? I mean, that seems to be a pretty easy black, white answer, right? <laughs> so I, I think a lot of people, that's what they're expecting, is that genetic testing is going to give you a black and white answer. But unfortunately, it's not. There's black, white, and gray. So there are genetic changes that we don't always know if they're just normal variation or if they are something important. That's one reason. The other is that it always also um, is in the context of your history. Mm -hmm. So we have to kind of look at the answer and say, does that answer make sense in the context of history? If we don't find any, anything, but your family history is still very concerning, that probably means we just missed something and we just don't have the answer today. And so for genetic counseling, it's helping people navigate what's the right test that's going to give us the best answers, and also then putting it in context and interpreting it based on family history, talking about what choices make sense for a, a patient based on their test results and their family history taken together and also who else in the family should be tested or who might be a better person to test in the family to answer the question um, as to whether it's hereditary or not. So it's kind of putting all of that in context. And also these tests can be pretty emotional for people sometimes. And so helping them make good decisions and helping them have the support to make the decision that's right for them as well. So it sounds like genetic counseling is really key to, to really all of this, right? Am I ordering the right test? Am I interpreting it right? Who else needs to be tested? And so on and so forth. But all of that starts with people being referred to you. Now, both of you talked about if you have a family history. What exactly does that mean? Like if, if my paternal great-great-great-grandfather had prostate cancer when he was 87, um, does that count? So usually when you're thinking about a family history and, and you're thinking about meeting with a genetic counselor, kind of thinking about doing genetic testing, you're really thinking more of either a family history of something that's an, occurring at an unusually young age, like breast cancer before 50, or multiple people who've all had the same type of condition in a family, like multiple people who've died from heart attacks at early ages, or in the context of hereditary cancer, multiple people who've all had the same type of cancer. So with your example there, I would say, no, a great-great-grandfather with prostate cancer at a later age is probably not something that would qualify you for really needing to meet with a genetic counselor or really needing any genetic testing. What if you're adopted? What if you don't know your family history and you're diagnosed with cancer? Should you be seeing a genetic counselor? 
So sometimes just personal history alone is enough. So we see patients that are adopted that have, as Claire mentioned, so if they have a cancer at a particularly young age, so since we often think of cancer as a disease of the aging process, if we see people with an early age of diagnosis, for most adult onset cancers, that means under 50. So if they had breast cancer under 50 or colon cancer under 50, and then we have that they're adopted so that they have limited information about their family history, sometimes that's enough or a cancer that's rare or tumor that's rare enough that is oftentimes caused by a genetic mutation. Um, so there's certain rare tumors. So those kinds of things alone can qualify someone for testing. Well, and the other thing is you mentioned, uh, Claire, about cancers of a similar type. So when we think about, I mean, one of the most common examples of hereditary cancers that I think everybody has heard about in the news is BRCA. Mm -hmm. And everybody has heard Angelina Jolie's story. But in her case, for example, um, her aunt had ovarian cancer, but I, you know, somebody else in her family had breast cancer. And mm -hmm. so those aren't in the same organ. They're not the same cancer. That's a very good point. So it's not just multiple people who've had the same type of cancer, but if there are related cancers in the family. So if you have the combination of breast or ovarian cancer, that can be a red flag. The combination of colon and uterine cancer in the same family um, or breast and pancreatic cancer can be a red flag as well. And so it's really not necessarily up to the patient to know all of that, but to make sure that they're giving their provider at their annual physical as comprehensive information about their family history as possible so that their provider can help them decide whether or not it's appropriate to see a genetic counselor. Okay, that makes sense. So let's suppose they they go to their primary care provider and the primary care provider says, hmm, well, not really sure here, but might be something that is a genetic uh, underlying issue. Remember, most cancers, as you said, uh, Karina, are sporadic. They're bum bad luck. I mean, it's just the luck of the draw. Somebody's got to get cancer, uh, you know. Um, and then they come and see you. What exactly happens at genetic counseling? I mean, what, what does that entail? Sure. So ours usually starts on the phone with our intake people that schedule the appointments and they take a little bit of information about, you know, the reason why someone's concerned or being seen in terms of their family history. Uh, we also, our center and many centers now use online tools. So we send people a link to a family history questionnaire where they answer some questions about their personal medical history and family history. If they don't have email or they don't get a chance to fill that out ahead of time, the start of the visit will be taking that information about their own personal medical history, their family history. We just sketch out everyone in the family, how many brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, who had cancer at what ages. And then we talk more about some of those risk factors we've been talking about. These are the things we see in your family. These are the things we don't see in your family. Based on that information, we think that you do meet criteria to consider genetic testing, or we do think there's a reasonable chance that there's something hereditary. And based on that, here's some of the testing options. Here's what it might tell you and help people make decisions about what they'd like to do, whether they want to do testing, how extensive the testing they want to do, um, what they might decide if we found something. So how how much does that visit 
what the genetic counselors cost? Is it covered by insurance? Is it, I mean, I, I can imagine that patients are kind of thinking about, um, you know, do they want to do this or not, knowing that most cancers are sporadic, but the information that you provide is really valuable, but they don't want a huge bill because their other doctors have already provided them with huge bills. Um, help us to understand that. Is this something that their insurance is going to cover? So most insurance companies will cover the cost of genetic counseling. Um, and if you're concerned about that, we can often put you in touch with our billing department that can help sort out whether or not your insurance does have um, coverage for genetic counseling. And for the most part, most patients don't pay more than a copay for the cost of the visit. Perfect. And so and so then, uh, after you've kind of sat down with the patient and you've gone through all of these uh, options, and let's say you see some pattern when you've drawn out this huge pedigree that concerns you, is it possible that, um, are you thinking about certain particular mutations that you want to test for, or is it that there's like panels of tests that you want to do all at the same time. How do you decide on what tests to order? So um, as a practice, we've kind of, there, there are now panel-based testing, which didn't used to be an option. That's really the last few years that that's come along. Um, and oftentimes what we will talk about depends on the family history. So sometimes it looks really specific for a very specific thing, and sometimes it really doesn't. So now, you know, beyond the example of BRCA1 and 2, uh, those are the most common genes for hereditary breast and ovarian cancer, but they're not the only genes. Mm -hmm. They account for the biggest percentage, but we now know that there's some other more modest risk genes or moderate risk genes that can account for some other cases. So oftentimes what we offer patients is panel-based testing or the choice of more targeted testing versus panel-based testing and just kind of help them decide. So excellent information. We're going to take a short break for a medical minute. And then after the break, we'll learn more about genetic testing and what to expect. Support comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for patients with different types of lung, bladder, ovarian, breast, and blood cancers. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about breast cancer, the most common cancer in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year. But thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and novel therapies, there are more options for patients to fight breast cancer than ever before. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with breast cancer. Digital breast tomosynthesis, or 3D mammography, is transforming breast screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers and eliminating some of the fear and anxiety many women experience. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined today by my guests, Karina Brierly and Claire Healy. So we started talking before the break about who should get genetic counseling and what exactly that visit entails. And we got to the point of figuring out whether you should get a test for a single mutation or a panel of mutations, which is a test that kind of tests for multiple mutations using a single 
uh, sample. Now, one question I have for you, Claire, is are these all blood-based or, or do people give you a saliva sample or what kind of test exactly is it? So most of the time it's blood, uh, but you can get DNA from uh, multiple different sources. So sometimes we do use saliva, um, but I think a lot of people imagine that that's a cheek swab like you see on CSI, when in reality it's a, a spit sample. So it's actually about a teaspoon of saliva that we collect. So I always tell my patients it takes about five minutes, so don't get discouraged when it doesn't fill up right away. And multiple people have said to me, I would rather do blood. <laughs> uh, and sometimes we can also get DNA from skin if it's really necessary, but usually it's uh, blood or saliva based. Okay. So you take this blood sample and you send it off for this test. How long does it take to get the results back? Karina? Um, it depends on the test. I'd say most of the tests that we do, most of those panel-based tests usually take a few weeks to get the test results back. Um, if it's urgent for treatment decision-making, we can often expedite testing. So some of our patients that are newly diagnosed with breast cancer, for example, need that information quickly. And oftentimes, the lab can get that back to us in about a week or so. Um, but mostly, it's a couple, people should expect a few weeks turnaround. Now, Claire, you told us before the break that most insurance companies cover genetic counseling mm -hmm. and that most patients only pay a copay. What about the test itself? So your genetic counselor is going to be your, your best help in navigating the insurance process in terms of coverage for genetic testing. Um, and it's not as easy to say that patients will have coverage for genetic testing as it is for genetic counseling. So we do have to take into account whether or not the patient meets national guidelines for genetic testing, whether they meet their insurance company's criteria, what labs are in network versus out of network, and the genetic counselors are available to help the patients navigate that process. So we will try and match up as much as possible to make sure that the patient has coverage. And then if they don't, we'll talk to them about out-of-pocket payment options, which have luckily significantly reduced in price over the last several years. So I can remember a time when the cost of genetic testing was in the thousands of dollars, uh, which might give patients a little bit of the heebie-jeebies when yes. thinking about whether or not to go through with this. So when you say that prices have dropped, how significantly have they dropped? Is this actually something that a real human can afford? <laughs> so most of the time. Um, it, the price has dropped from thousands of dollars out of pocket to usually a couple hundred dollars out of pocket. The laboratories that we use oftentimes have financial assistance programs for patients, and we can help navigate the process of applying for coverage through those as well if necessary. So talk to your genetic counselor. Mm -hmm. All right. So... The patient has seen you, has gotten their pedigree, you've decided on a panel of tests, you have taken this blood sample, you've sent it off, uh, they didn't get a huge bill, they're very grateful. Uh, two to three weeks later, the tests come back. What are the possibilities of what that test could be, Karina, and um, ha what happens then? Sure. So again, that's kind of where the genetic counselor comes in and our team comes in. We review everything as a team. Um, and then we talk to patients about their results, either on the phone or in person or both. And basically, there's typically three different test results we can find. They scanned through all the genes that they were looking at, and it's completely normal negative results. 
they scan through the genes and they find a mutation that they know is associated with risk. And the third is the variant of uncertain significance, which was that kind of gray area test result um, where it's a genetic change that the lab can't completely interpret at this point. It could be that it's just the normal variation, which most of those end up being just normal variation, but it could be something important. So let's talk about each of those three scenarios in turn. First scenario, you have this family history that was concerning. Uh, You go, you get your test, test comes back negative. What does that mean? Does that mean I'm free and clear, hallelujah, this was just sporadic, I can celebrate, uh, no mutation, I'm baseline risk? No. Uh, Darn it. (laughs) We have a major family history go away. So even if we do genetic testing, we look at a panel of genes that we think covers the majority of risk that could be explaining the family history and everything is negative, really what that means is perhaps there is a genetic risk in the family that that patient has not inherited, which would be good news. Or perhaps we don't know what gene is explaining the family history at this point in time because we still don't know what a number of the genes in our body are responsible for. And so in that case, we might recommend genetic testing to other people in the family to try and help clarify that situation. And we might still recommend increased screening or even sometimes prevention to those families even when they're negative. So... So a family history still counts, even if you are negative for a panel of genes. Um, but it's nice to be negative better than being positive. Um, so let's suppose you're, you are positive, uh, Karina. Let's suppose you test for a genetic mutation, and lo and behold, you have that genetic mutation. Okay, so now you have this information. What does that mean? So and it, how do you process that? Sure. So it de- it's going to depend on what gene it's in and your, the rest of your family history and your own history. So again, we're advocating here for genetic counseling that that's kind of where that comes in is to talk about, okay, now that we have this mutation, what are the risks that are associated? How high are they? So which cancers are we concerned about? How high are the risks? Does it mean that we just have to add some additional screening and start younger than we would in the general population? Or is the risk high enough that we might consider prevention um, through taking a medication or even preventative surgery? Uh, So we talk about all of that. We talk about what it means for the family as well. So who else in the family might be at risk and might need testing? Um, So we kind of go over all of those things. And sometimes it's not what you're going to, you know, for young patients especially, they may not do everything that would be mapped out as options immediately. It might be taking things one step at a time and what makes sense for this five years and the next five years. Um, And our knowledge is going to evolve over time for some of these genes that are newer as well. So it's oftentimes just looking at everything, again, in context of personal preferences, family history, how high the risks are, all of those things together. So so if you have a genetic mutation, the first thing is, well, usually um, you can get some advice on preventing cancers. It means that you're at higher risk, but maybe you can do something about that. Um, it also puts your your family at increased risk, right? Mm-hmm. So so what's the process then? I mean, do you do you have to tell your family about this mutation that you have because they also may be at risk or um, can you keep that a secret or what are the rules, Claire? 
Well, there's no hard and fast rules, but we would really prefer you not keep that information a secret. Um, your family members, your first degree relatives, second degree relatives, third degree relatives, even farther back if you're in contact with them, should really be notified of that information because they're all at risk to have that same mutation. We share our genes in common with our family members, which is what makes us related. And so those relatives should have the chance to know that information so they can make informed decisions about whether they want testing to determine whether they need increased screening or prevention as well. And so the other aspect to all of this, I would assume, is, you know, when you're sitting down, Karina, and you're talking to these patients and you're going through, okay, you have this mutation and these are recommendations either for increased screening or for prophylactics surgery or whatever, I can imagine that that is an unbelievably emotional discussion. And how, how do you counsel patients just in terms of, you know, that whole concept of, oh, my God, am I going to give an increased risk to my children? Um, you know, I, I caused my cancer. All of that emotional baggage. Um, that comes with us. Sure. So, I mean, that's part of our training and part of our job. And I oftentimes, when I talk to patients, try to normalize it that really, from our training in genetics, we know like all of us carry certain mutations. We all have a handful of mutations. I think people aren't aware of that. So, people don't really think about it that way. I try to tell people. All of us have these mutations. We all have a handful. We didn't control whether we inherited them or passed them down. But in this case, at least we know. And now we know that mutation would have been doing whatever it was doing anyway. But at least we know and we can take action and hopefully prevent what's happened in families. And sometimes people actually, because they already have that family history, sometimes people actually, it's reassuring to kind of know and be able to take action and be able to be proactive and really have an explanation for why they got cancer. Um, it gives them some control sometimes. So yeah. you, there's kind of a mix of emotions, and it's it's hard to predict for one person what it's going to feel like or what things they're going to be concerned about. Um, but I think we're just there to kind of listen and support and help people use that information for po- in positive ways. Right. I, I, I think knowledge is power uh, for many patients. And so, as you say, I mean, you, you would have had this mutation whether we would have told you about it or not. Um, but now that you know, uh, potentially there are things you can do about it. Now, Claire, the, the other issue is um, if you know about this genetic mutation and you know that that genetic mutation does X, Y, Z, it increases your risk for um, various malignancies or whatever, what are the implications that that has in terms of getting life insurance, mm-hmm. uh, keeping a job, um, et cetera, et cetera? Like, I mean... I think patients might be really fearful about getting genetic testing because, gosh, if those results are in your medical record and, you know, you're asked about it on a form, um, could you be denied coverage later? Yeah, so that's probably one of the most common questions we get asked as genetic counselors. So there's kind of two separate types of insurance to think about. There's health insurance. And then there's life insurance, disability insurance, long-term care insurance. And in terms of health insurance and even employment, to your point, there are laws that prohibit the results of your genetic testing being used against you as a pre-existing condition. So your health insurance company, your employer cannot use that information to charge you a higher premium, deny you coverage. Um, And those laws have been in place for a long time now. 
In terms of life insurance, disability insurance, long-term care insurance, there unfortunately are not laws that prohibit those companies from using this information as a pre-existing condition. So as part of my counseling process, I talk to patients about that ahead of time before they go forward with testing. And a lot of times for our young patients who haven't had a cancer diagnosis, we might say, you know, it sounds like you're really interested in testing. Here are the concerns about those types of insurances. Would you prefer to wait and get those policies in place before you have testing? Because once you have a policy in place, they can't use that information retroactively. So just as a follow-up to that, um, could somebody, for example, get one of these off-the-TV tests that give you some medical information, although you mentioned that it was not as robust and not as uh, good as official um, genetic testing. I mean, certainly we can't use uh, 23andMe, for example, and that's just uh, one company, but uh, for medical decision-making, we require uh, an actual test from uh, a, a bonafide uh, company to make any kind of medical decisions. Could they get that, keep the, keep the results to themselves as a secret, then if it tests like positive, go get really good insurance and then come to you and say, hey. So sometimes the the life insurance companies are getting savvy and they're asking patients on those 100-page questionnaires you have to fill out when you purchase life insurance if you've had genetic testing and if so, what the results were. And so you are obligated to answer that honestly. Um, you've had 23andMe testing. I don't know that I would classify that as sort of the gold standard of genetic testing, but I think there are some concerns about how that information could be used against you by those companies. Claire Healy and Karina Brierly are certified genetic counselors. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.